Welcome to the With Ingram series of podcasts. This is episode three, and I'm Philip Ingram. And today, I'm speaking to Zach Doffman from Digital Barriers and Forbes. Warning, you might actually learn something. I'm very fortunate to sit down and talk to Zach Doffman, who is the CEO of a company called Digital Barriers, but is also a prolific writer for Forbes. Um, Zach, thank you for talking to me. It's great to meet you, and good to see you here at DSEI. Interesting that um, you're here at DSEI, Digital Barriers does um, surveillance and you've got quite a lot of video analytics capability in the back end of your surveillance platforms. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about what um, Digital Barriers does and, the, and, and what you're providing? Yeah, so Digital Barriers has two core capabilities. Uh, the first one is we stream live video over very low bandwidths, so IoT type bandwidths, which is fantastic for security, defense, surveillance. And what we've done over the last few years is we've ported that core technology to a whole different type range of endpoints. So, for example, we have a body-worn camera, as you would typically see on law enforcement officers, police officers, but ours are live. You can stream live video, you can run facial recognition on them, um, you can uh, create a panic alert with a GPS location if an officer gets into trouble, completely different to, uh, to other devices on the market. That's the first thing we do. The second thing we do is, as you said, we do analytics. So in essence, we analyze live video streams to create alerts. And that might be because a registration plate has gone past. It could be because we see somebody on a watch list, which is what we're probably best known for in that field. Or it could just be monitoring locations to see if people enter the scene, at which point we can create an alert. Now, all of this monitoring that's going on has created a little bit of controversy very recently with the um, police trials of facial recognition software, the trials at King's Cross Station on facial recognition software, uh, and you're providing that recognition capability. Where do you stand on the controversy argument at the moment? So a lot of different things mixed up in, in your question, so we'll unpick it. Um, the first thing to say is facial recognition is a powerful tool and it's a real help to those that are charged with keeping the public safe. And the reason that police of, senior police officers campaign for it is they know it makes a real difference on the front line. So the first thing to be said is it's a technology that can be a force for good, but critically it shouldn't be used indiscriminately. It needs to be regulated, it needs to be controlled, it needs to be used appropriately and proportionately. And where the controversy should be focused is where there is indiscriminate usage. You mentioned King's Cross. Now, we're not privy to the details of that. It wasn't our technology. But I think there are several things to say about that kind of use case. First one is, you know, what was it actually being used for? And is that genuinely a use case that would have public consent? And, and I suspect, on balance, probably not. In contrast with Sharp End Frontline Law Enforcement, where there is, the survey suggests, good public consent for it being used properly. The second thing, and maybe the more important thing recently, is when the controversy hit the press, I think the response to it was, was poor. I think there needs to be transparency with technologies like facial recognition. Those that are deploying it need to be open with the public and how it's being used, why it's being used, how watch lists are being put together, what happens if people are seen. As soon as you start to hide all that and create this cloak and dagger suspense, you inevitably create more controversy. And in that way, the industry, in that instance, hasn't helped itself. So um, do you think that um, the industry is doing itself a disservice by not being more open with the general public, by not explaining what's going on? What is it that you think regulation can do and bring in? And how do we get the regulatory bodies to work in the same sort of development timeframes that the technological companies are able to work in? Great questions. Um, <clears throat> I mean, the first part of your question is about being transparent. So we're here at a show, so this is a closed defence show, but we've got facial recognition here. 
But we as a business, and I suspect more than anyone else in the, in the facial recognition industry, have been very open with the media. We've we've shown the technology to Sky, the BBC, to ITV, they've, they, Fox, NBC. They've had the opportunity to come and play with it and see how it works. And we've never tailored those demonstrations. We've let journalists, reporters come in and, and play with the technology, enrol themselves, see how it works in crowded scenes, show them what's going on behind the scenes because there's nothing to be scared of. It's, it's just the technology and it needs to be used properly. When it comes to regulation, regulation is about several things. <clears throat> the real controversy on facial recognition should be around watch lists. What, what puts somebody on one of those watch lists? How is that data secure? What happens if, if one of these people is seen? That can all be regulated. Um, just as other types of policing and law enforcement are regulated, where, where does an individual cross the line to get themselves onto, onto a list? So once that's established, how is it used? And some operations, you might say, are um, uh, suitable for facial recognition, and others would not be. It comes down to public concerns, and you know where, where we think about things like counter-terrorism, you know, very serious security issues. I don't think there would be much public backlash about using facial recognition to uh, intercept a terrorist cell operating in central London near here, um, trying to do the public harm. But you, you switch that into looking for low-level crime and, and people that may be known to the police for you know, petty offences, public consent goes away. And somehow the politicians and society that they represent need to find that happy balance. It's not for the industry to do that, it's for those that run the country to decide how it should be used. OK, you're a commentator in this real-world case. Um, low-level crime shoplifting um, through known drug users in a store. Um, and the drug users that are coming in are increasingly starting to um, carry knives with them or syringes with them with needles attached and if staff approach them, threaten the staff. Is it appropriate, do you think, therefore, to bring in a facial recognition type capability to alert the staff and potentially then alert the police if people are coming in in that, in that sort of scenario? Brilliant. So, um, in the instance you've described, <coughs> you, you, you know, a, an individual has represented a serious threat to members of staff in a store. Now, what you're talking about actually would be a criminal offence. So, they could be on all kinds of different watch lists for all kinds of different reasons. Um, and therefore, I think you can, you can argue a case where regulation and controls would allow the interception of that individual visiting a store because of what's happened in the past. But right now, because there isn't any kind of regulation and we are in a strange GDPR grey area, what might happen is if I, uh, as a, if I, if I nick a can of beans from Tesco and I, I leave the store, should I be on a watch list? Now, should I then not be allowed to go into any other Tesco in the country? And what happens if I make that watch list available to Sainsbury's? Maybe I can't go into any Sainsbury's as well. And why might I justify that? Because there's a carve out, because I'm trying to, there's a, you know, a law enforcement or a security and control carve out under GDPR. I think that's when we get into a grey area. So I think whether it's on the commercial side or the law enforcement side, there needs to be a sensible line drawn where on balance the public would say, yeah, that's absolutely fair enough. So if you had Tony Porter sitting here, the Civilians Camera Commissioner, what one bit of advice would you give him as to where to draw that line? What exactly as I've just said, I think the, the line is public consent. I, I genuinely believe that. I, you know, there's been, I know there was some research here in the UK in the last week and there was a, a, a Pew Research Centre survey in the States as well. And both had remarkably similar findings. Most people don't understand how facial recognition works, point one. Point two, on balance, the majority of the public are in favour of it being used properly by the police to keep the public safe and they're not in favour of it being used in an indiscriminate fashion. Let's start there. So what, what you know, there are some obvious use cases. You know, a, an escaped prisoner, a murder on the run, 
counter-terrorism, obvious use cases, you won't have any pushback. And then let's just move down until we find the right balance and then let's go back up a bit so we're in very safe territory. Start there, operate at that level for a period of time until the public gets used to it, the technology continues to improve, we iron out the issues that there are with all new technologies and then we can continually go back and review have we, have we got the line in the right place. Exactly as we've done with other contentious parts of law enforcement, you know, counter-terror legislation writ large, sex offender reg um, legislation, we've had to take the same approach with all of these areas of law, we should do the same thing here. Now, moving on from facial recognition and the technology that you provide, you, you write a lot for Forbes and you are a prolific um, writer on different issues within the wider information, the electronic sphere, um, uh, intelligence sharing uh, and everything else and you know, I'm, a, I'm a great fan of the stuff that you put out there. Um, so you recently put a warning out about um, location tracking um, on iOS 13 and, and Android 10. Um, one of the reasons why I'm asking is I, I've got a theory and I've, I've put a blog out about um, Pokemon Go being one of the best beta testing crowdsourced intelligence gathering tools that's been put out there through a national intelligence agency. You'll, you'll find that on greyhairmedia.com if you want to read it, but it's slightly Machiavellian, but it, you're, you're touching on that with these new operating systems. So my six-year-old is, is a huge Pokemon Go guy. I'm not going to tell him that. I think he'd, he'd get even more excited if he, if he knew that. Um, so the, let's be clear, the, the, the stuff on uh, Android 10 and iOS 13 actually wasn't a warning, it was a warning from Facebook. Uh, and the reason I think that was interesting is that it was ironic. So, so one of the things I've covered quite a lot is the whole privacy debate around social media, compromise of user information, the, where we find ourselves now, 18 months post Cambridge Analytica, and, and the continued monetization and data security around our very sensitive information. What was interesting today is, or last night, Facebook warned, uh, warned its user base that the increasing privacy controls, location tracking controls in the new iOS and Android versions are going to limit some of Facebook's functionality, which I found laughable, candidly. So the idea that we, we as users are going to stop them um, creating personalised ads and monetizing our data was dressed up as a, you know, as a warning to users that they should maybe take care and, and how those settings are being used and ensure that Facebook is able to continue to operate for in its few the right reasons. I think what it touches on is some very, very genuine issues though. Um, I think it's clear that the world, the legal protections that we have in place have never really thought through something that's almost James Bond-like and you think about the James Bond media villains where we have these serious global organizations that have data on a third of the planet that are able to operate with an era of independence and autonomy that we've never seen before. The controls simply aren't in place. And what we've seen over the last two years is a gradual realization from the public, from politicians, from regulators that I don't think anyone could be trusted with that kind of information. Certainly the, the, those that have it today have proven that they, uh, they're, they're not, it's not safe in their hands. We don't know what the answer is yet. There's no, there's no happy ending to this yet. We need to work it through. I applaud what the likes of Google and, and Apple are doing in trying to create more user privacy controls, notwithstanding their own controversies recently, but there needs to be a lot more of that. But do you think our politicians and our decision makers actually understand the power of information that's out there and the way it is being used, and I will say abused, by those that probably have a better understanding of its power and have practiced its misuse in the past in a much better way? Um, I think, being candid, I don't, I don't think almost any members of the public, businessmen, most technologists and certainly politicians and regulators understand the depths of the 
algorithms and analytics that are taking place across all of these platforms, the ability for platforms to track us from device to device, from website to service, what they're able to infer about us, um, what you know, the, the linking what we do online to our real identities, to our behaviours, the manipulation, the micro-manipulation that takes place of our behaviours. And whilst it was headline issues around population and election interference, hybrid warfare involving Russia and China and, you know, big global issues that brought some of this to light, it's happening every day. Um, it, is the, it is the core social media business model, this monetization of data. We, we, we read descriptions of data being more valuable now than gold. That's not for nothing. We've paid the price for all of that. And without, <clears throat> generally, without singling out the, the obvious culprits, I think we've seen in some of the public statements in, to politicians and, and the media more generally, the court cases, the attitude that big tech takes to data clearly needs to change. The only thing that's going to change it is regulation. And we probably need to go too far and then cycle back because right now, notwithstanding some of the nibbling around the edges we've seen in the last year, we're still sharing and compromising way too much. And in the last, um, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen you know, hundreds of millions of um, user data records being breached. <clears throat> this will keep happening over and over again until something is done about it. But what you've described there with your Facebook's concern, um, with what's been happening with data in the past and where it's going in the future, that was just marketing, surely? Surely all this is is uh, interest groups marketing. What makes it different that we should be concerned about rather than um, being persuaded to buy uh, the latest um, washing up liquid because it does 10 times the number of dishes and got a catchy tune associated with it? Well, I mean, we can argue the toss around whether we believe that um, psychological manipulation of our online behaviours based on very algorithmic scientific cookies and what we've done and how we did it and how fast we did it and when we did it and what time of day or night we're online and who we know and what they bought and what we bought and what they messaged us about, whether we think that's a clever way to be manipulated into buying you know, fairy liquid rather than a, a different brand of, uh, of washing up liquid. Fine, you're right, the stakes interesting but low stakes it's not much different to you know the tv commercials of the 60s where it got all very glitzy and glossy and they were trying to work out how to how to get us how to get at the pounds in our pocket but what we've seen over the last 18 months is an unveiling of the lack of controls and the the stakes being considerably higher because if i can manipulate you to um to buy in a certain direction i can manipulate you to vote in a certain direction and candidly i can probably manipulate you to think in a certain direction and that in of itself is horrifically dystopian and, and has extremely terrifying connotations. And, you know, the hyperbole part, I almost think you can't be too hyperbolic about the implications here. But then what we've seen is we've seen a, a, an actor like Russia who said, actually, I can control the media in overseas countries. I can start to play games with population views and I can interfere in elections because I have the tools they've been built for me. We saw controversy in Hong Kong recently. We saw it with the uh, with the Moscow protests, where state media and state actors can use these platforms to, you know, paint a particular agenda, manipulate the population again. Again, we, we have to decide as a society what we're comfortable with. What was really interesting, taking you back to the the, the Facebook, sorry, yeah, the Facebook article from earlier. What's really interesting is. What, what, they, what Facebook does in its blog post is it, be, it offers the question up to its user base, it's billions, and says, do you want the convenience or do you want the privacy? And that is the crux of the entire social media debate. 
And as I've written many times, what's ironic as Facebook has stumbled from one data security controversy to the next is continues to grow and its share price goes up. So ultimately, it pays a fine. The fine is peanuts in terms of the, 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 the money that it's generating. The public are voting with their feet and saying, actually, you know what, we're, pretty, we're relaxed, we don't care. And when you think about some of what's come out with regards to Brexit, the election of President Trump, that is a seriously scary place for the population of the Western world to find itself. You then transfer that into China, which has taken data manipulation and citizen scoring and you know, the addition of facial recognition and AI to a whole new level. You know, we are at the very beginnings of this. This isn't the culmination of you know, generations of technology. This is the first forays. Startups have just emerged with this tech. Fast forward 10 years, if we don't do something about it now, then we will find ourselves possibly in a territory where we can't cycle back. Um, you, you introduced China, so I'm, I'm going to uh, jump, on to, jump onto that now. You've talked of data manipulation. Uh, there's been a lot of controversy over recent months about uh, technology being compromised through Huawei and the, the, the way that's gone into the States. So if we're getting the data manipulated and we're getting the ability to keep our devices secure that are processing that data, um, you, do you think our devices are actually compromised in, in, in that way? Do you think that effort's coming in? Are you seeing a greater amount of state involvement in what's going on um, rather than commercial involvement um, to try and influence? Wow, okay. Where to start? Um, so let's, let, again, let's, let's unpick some of those because there's some huge issues in what you've just said. So I think the first thing that's been really interesting and probably over the last six months in particular has been pricking the bubble of smartphone security. I think we saw it with the... Um, the news that broke that China had been hacking, it now seems, all devices from all manufacturers to target, you know, Uyghur population, the, 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 uh, the diaspora um, for its Muslim minority from Xinjiang. Um, we've seen it with a whole range of different Android compromises over the last, um, over the last year. We saw Google warning that the open source version of Android was actually shipping with, you know, serious malware on board because the supply chain had been compromised. So let's all accept the fact that from a device manipulation perspective, these smart devices are not as locked down and secure as we might think. And whilst we might play around with, you know, fingerprints and face ID and stuff, there is a, you know, these are the, as I've called it, the, the, the keys to our digital kingdom. And we need to be cognizant of that. There are all kinds of reasons why state actors might want to manipulate that level of access or that, that level of um, uh, uh, capability. And that could be cyber terrorism. So the, you know, we, we've seen social engineering, the ability for um, state actors to um, access particularly high profile individuals or individuals with data and information they want to get. So that's a very targeted way. Um, it could be um, cybercrime. So what we saw, the, 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 the news, although denied out of North Korea, that they were targeting financial institutions to help fund some of their weapons programs. Um, and it just could be generally striking back. We've seen Iran, um, who is less capable than others of striking the US military, given the conflict in the Gulf. Basically, what it can do is it can target US commercials and it can play games with critical infrastructure because that's more accessible to it. I think, and then that, that encroaches onto what's really what we're seeing at the moment is I think a real shift in cyber security and cyber warfare this year. I think there's been an unveiling again with, and it's, it's particularly coalesced around what we've seen in the Gulf, but in parallel you've seen what's going on in Russia and China as well. All of the actors are the same, you've got Russia, you've got China, you've got Iran, you've got North Korea. These, these are the 
actors that are sponsoring, funding all of this development, you've got what we would think sitting here is the good guys on the other side, but a free world where people, you know, to make their own decisions, which makes them, you know, vulnerable to these these kinds of compromises. Again, there's no easy answer to all of this. The, the, the challenge is the more we become reliant on these ecosystems, the more we leave ourselves open to attack. There is, um, and the, uh, we've seen reports in the um, in the last few days even, um, there is increasingly an understanding that, or, or a, a realisation that the sophistication of individual targeting as part of cyber security vulnerabilities, I think is way beyond what people think it would be. So if I, you know, the, and I run a business, so myself, my CFO, daily receive targeted phishing attacks where they are you know cleverly trying to get us to manipulate to get access to data steal credentials you know um, manipulate the business into making payments and that's going on in almost all businesses almost every day and that's what we're seeing that level of sophistication but ultimately sitting behind it are eco infrastructure ecosystems technology that's open to attack and that is showing no signs of being controlled dissipating and, and again just as with the social media point the problems are getting worse and we don't yet have any ready answers for it. And to answer your first question, that's why I think this space, the whole information security, cyber security space is so, I don't know, such a big, interesting space right now. And, you know, the more comment, commentary, the better, right? So do you think one of the big issues that we need to deal with is from the earliest stage, the lowest level, is a greater level of education in getting people to understand their digital exposure? Because there's stuff that people will put up online that they'd never do standing in the front window of the house with the curtains open. Um, but people think it's okay. And, and, and it's trying to change that mindset. Uh, and if, if the answer is yes, do you think we can ever get the genie put back in the bottle? Yeah, it's... Um I think it's interesting, and I think we saw with some high-profile um, you know, security leaders in this country and the States, when they were recruited into their positions, we saw news about you know, what was on Instagram and what was on Facebook and were there potential compromises, and, and that, that grabbed headlines, and there is clearly an element of that. I think we're, we, we're now a generation beyond that. I think where we've reached is a place where the, the attacks are much more sophisticated than that. We're seeing LinkedIn attacks, we're seeing attacks on HR departments using CVs and the CVs are laced with malware. How on earth do you train an HR professional not to click on a CV? How do you train someone to understand what a real and a fake LinkedIn profile looks like when that fake profile could have been you know, being run for 18 months to create you know, all normal traffic to, to fool people? So yes, there clearly needs to be staff training, but in of itself, I think the level of sophistication has moved beyond uh, beyond where that would be. I think if you then go to the other end of the extreme, what, what we've seen in some of the more headline-grabbing cyber attacks, I mean, as, as you know well, there's always a human dimension to a cyber attack. And we have this view that there's a load of coders sitting in a basement, you know, with, with, with a great network and, and some fancy laptops. It's, it doesn't work that way. Behind that, there's the social compromise of an individual, someone's stolen passwords and keys. There's access, you know, there's... there's there's you know thumb drives being put into system. all kinds of stuff is going on, and that gives you these headline-grabbing attacks. The the issue for the guys sitting in basements without any of that is is for you and me. It's for guys with normal systems at home. The the billions of IoT devices that are going to get deployed, all of which are connected, most of which will never get patched. This whole IoT compromise issue we've seen over the last three or four months, where these you know devices that've been around for firmware that's been around for years suddenly has vulnerabilities that no one realised. You've got IT organisations don't even know what they've got. So the warning is, never mind you should patch it. it. You probably haven't got it on any kind of inventory. It's on no lists. You've got to find it. You know, patching your elevators and your printers and your VoIP phones. I mean, we are in 
you know, seriously scary territory with this stuff. Um, and, and Zach, being, being an old um, uh, intelligence officer and, and human inter, you know, I'd, I'd hack the serotonin, as you, you touched on, so you hack the individual, uh, and I'm holding up my forefinger. That's the digit, that's the digital problem that causes most of it. It's in the physical world and causes uh, an effect in the physical world. I could talk to you all afternoon, but thank you very much indeed for spending some time here at DSEI having a chat with me. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. Really good and interesting chat.